Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everyone, my guest and co-host today is the very funny, very talented Cal Penn, who you know from the Harold and Kumar movies, Designated Survivor, How I Met Your Mother, House, and a lot more. Cal tells me about the challenges of writing his book, You Can't Be Serious, growing up in New York, impressing the school bullies, being set on fire, working in the White House, his appreciation of NASCAR, and much more. Our first call today is with Megan, whose best friend's husband kissed her. Making matters worse, the man also happens to be the pastor of Megan's church. Now he is accusing Megan of initiating the kiss, and it seems her description of events might not be fully believed. Next, we get a call from Emily, who finds herself having to spend time socializing with her coworkers, despite each instance leaving her frustrated and unhappy. Now, Emily wonders where she can draw the line. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you have a question and would like to talk with us, we would love to hear from you. Just look for the link in our show notes. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Did you find writing your book, You Can't Be Serious, torturous? On the one hand, the idea of writing the book, I didn't know what it was going to be like. I usually write, you know, sketches or dumb characters or things that are not me, things that are decidedly not me. There are these absurd, obscure things that hopefully make people laugh. But, you know, it's a memoir, so it has autobiographical elements to it. And then there was a bunch of research into things and all of which is to say I wasn't expecting how much of a therapy session it kind of was. Oh. So many of the stories in the book are stories that I've shared with friends, like after the third beer of the night, you know, like when you actually start opening up and sharing stories. And so one of the reasons I wanted to share them with people is because they're stories that I find funny or fun. A lot of them are like, back in the day, here's what happened in middle school. Here's what happened in college. So I turned in the first draft of this book. And my editor is like, when you pitched this to me, it was really funny. And this is really dark. What happened? Oh, God. And I go back and I'm reading through it, her notes. And I was like, oh, shit. The first draft was like super dark because I wasn't drinking and I was just at a computer at my desk. And so, you know, I'm sure you do this as an actor. Your sense memory kicks in. So when you're recounting a story, you're recounting it from the time you were 13 or the time that you were, you know, 21. So I had to go back in and tell it again the way that I actually tell it to friends, which is also why there's an audiobook. So I enjoyed it, but it was also the kind of thing where I would text other friends of mine who had written books and some of them were like, yeah, dude, why do you think writers are drunks? Like, it's because of that, this feeling of, what am I doing? Total exposure. Yeah. I'm always drawn to the early childhood stuff. Yeah. I'm intrigued by the idea of being raised by immigrant parents. Yeah. That is a very unique upbringing for a kid in America, I would think. You're not wrong in that when you're the kid of immigrant parents, the clock starts when you're born in a way that is a little bit different. 
A lot of kids of immigrants, actually, and especially, I think, a lot of Asian American immigrants or Indian American immigrants will talk about this idea of feeling like you have one foot in two different worlds. And I never actually felt that way. So what made my perspective a little bit different was I grew up in a suburb of New York City. So the way I describe it in the book is like, I wouldn't say it was a diverse town, but it was at least like white diverse. Right. Like kids would go home and speak Italian or Polish or in our case, Gujarati or Hindi in addition to English. And, and so there was that. So the idea that you were multilingual or the idea that you ate food that wasn't, you know, a, a BLT at lunch when you were home on Sunday, none of that to me ever defined whether you were or weren't considered American. That was just part of the American experience. And I think that differs from a lot of people who are the kids of immigrants who might grow up in a place where they're the only ones and they feel like, oh gosh, what's the deal here? Like, how do I fit in? Is there a phrase or a word that you wish could translate better into English? And I'm hoping to kind of link this to your childhood experiences, too. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll tell you, (laughs) it's not even specifically a Gujarati word. And forgive me because the story is in the book, but it's a true story, by the way. Like, of all of the names of people or characters that I had to change because the lawyer at Simon & Schuster was like, you could get sued, this one is not changed. So my parents, my mom especially, had a friend uh, named Pushpa. And everyone is an auntie or an uncle. And the reason for that is even if you're not related by blood, they basically share the same immigration experience as your parents and they form a community when they come to the United States. So when you are born and, you know, you're raised by your parents, but these are like very close friends who are essentially de facto relatives. So they can pass judgment on you and give you advice. Huge. Like all my (laughs) Jewish and Italian friends can liken this to their version of aunties and uncles, which are like your parents' best friends who will ask you the most invasive questions about your salary, about what your SAT scores were. I can't even imagine the like love life stuff. Oh, that's the next level. And I think Priyanka Chopra in her book described this so beautifully. I'm going to totally get it wrong, her actual description. But it was something like, you know, these people are basically your extended family. So when they ask you these types of questions, it's not because they want to gossip, which they will do. Uh But it's because of a sense that they're supporting you and they have an interest in your well-being. So my mom has this friend named Pushpa, auntie, and she's very docile. She's very quiet, really sweet, takes a keen interest or used to take a keen interest when we were teenagers in what we were doing. And so because she was so sweet and kind, her friends, my mom's friends, they came up with a nickname for her, Pushy, Pushy auntie, because she's not pushy. She's actually very sweet. And the challenge here, you asked about language, is that sometimes in the Gujarati language and a few other Indian languages, the SH sound is sometimes switched with an S sound. So instead of saying, (laughs) um, you see where I'm going (laughs) with this. I can't believe it took me this long. (laughs) Yeah. Instead of saying, oh, shit, someone might say, oh, sit. And instead of saying, pushy auntie's here, they would say, pussy auntie's here. And so we were like 12 years old and you'd have other aunties downstairs at my parents' house when this station wagon pulled up announcing to everybody, hey, kids, pussy aunties here, come downstairs. (laughs) And we were laughing our asses off. The aunties had no idea why. A couple of uncles were like, yeah, yeah, we understand why you're laughing. But so, yes, language and dialects and even particular linguistics can be a ridiculous, funny thing when you're a kid. Have you been to your high school reunions? So sadly, I missed both of them so far because I was working and I couldn't get the day off. I went to high school in New Jersey and I was working, I think, in Canada and L.A. for uh, both of those times. Have you gone? I did. I went to my 20th. That's awesome. How do you think that people would remember you? 
Oh, man, what a nice question. I mean, depending on the answer, I guess. So I was kind of a nerd, but the high school that I went to wasn't your typical high school in that obviously there were cliques of people, meaning people hung out with their own groups of friends. But it wasn't like the high schools that you see in the movies where there's the cool kids and there's the jocks and then there's the drama students. There were those clubs and organizations, but, you know, we had people who played on the football team who also did a school play. Oh, sounds like a healthy school. It was fairly, I've heard it's changed since then. So I don't know. But yeah, it was really weird. It wasn't until college that I realized that people actually went to high schools where it was considered not cool to take the bus. And I was like, what do you mean? How did you get to school? <laughs> like, well, either you got dropped off or you had a car. I was like, oh, that must have been nice. Yeah. You know, I was the son of immigrants. I can't say buy me a car. Yeah. It was just like, yeah, you want to go to school, you got to take the bus. So I really wanted to take a bunch of classes that you weren't allowed to take if you were enrolled in certain other classes. I'll tell you what I mean. So there was a magnet program for the arts. I went to a public high school and in the district were five high schools total. Each one had a magnet program for something different. And I really wanted to go to the magnet program for high school in the arts, which was not at my actual high school. They would bus you there for half the day if you got in. And I got into the arts program. So I would get bused for half a day. But I also really wanted to take an AP history class because I was genuinely interested in it. So I had to petition the school board to let me start school at a different school. So I basically went to three schools. The first school started at seven in the morning. So I'd basically go to that school first, then come to my regular academic school and then go to the arts high school. I I warned you about the nerddom. Then apparently that wasn't good enough. And I was this insufferable 16 year old where I was like, hey, there's a philosophy class offered at one of the schools that I already go to. Can I just take that instead of eating lunch? Because I have this bus ride to the other high school that I can just eat my lunch at during that time. So can I just take this other class? And they said, no, it's against state law for a student to take this many classes because you're a child. Yeah. And you're like, you're not allowed to do that. We can't keep you in school that long. So I worked it out with the teacher. His name was Mr. Craze, wonderful guy. And he let me audit this class. And all the other students were like, how are you able to do this? And I remember meeting the guidance counselor who I didn't love. And she goes, you know, it's unfair. You can't get graded for these things because it puts you at an unfair advantage. You'll have a weighted GPA. Your GPA will be higher than everyone else's. I'm like, for fucking doing the work? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I'm sorry it's not my problem that the other students don't want to apply themselves, (laughs) that they wanted to eat lunch in the cafeteria. So part of the reason I'm answering the question that way is like, I feel like that was kind of insufferable in retrospect. But at the time, I know that it was just like the quirky thing that everybody knew that I was doing and seemed to think that it was just a weird, quirky thing. Well, it's interesting that you also confronted at the time in your life when you're starting to really realize the absurdity of adults at times. <laughs> yeah. And it can be crazy making. But were you always a really good student? I mean, did you consistently get a 4.0? No, that's probably the biggest irony of wanting to do all these things. I absolutely did not get a 4.0. And my grades were pretty inconsistent. I mean, even through college, I wasn't very good at science or math. I'm still not very good at science or math. It didn't mean I wasn't interested in it. I thought my physics class was super interesting in high school. My physics teacher was this like 112-year-old woman named Mrs. Teller. She was not very good. I also was a bad student. And I was the kind of student who... 
And I wonder if you were like this too, because a lot of actors and writers are, because we tend to ask why a lot. So I would ask why if we had to memorize this equation in physics and somebody would be talking about time dilation in astronomy. I'm like, this sounds really cool. How do we know if that's a theory or if that's in practice? And if it's in practice, what can it be used for? Now, as an actor, you know, you need to have the answer to something before you memorize a line, before you enter into a scene, right? So that part of my brain was like, well, if I know the answer to this, then it'd be really easy to memorize this equation. And Mrs. Teller would always be like, my dear boy, the only thing that you should know is memorizing the equation. You don't need to know anything else unless you're intending on getting a PhD in astrophysics, which I assure you from your grades, you are not. And I was like, damn, ice cold, Mrs. Teller, ice cold. So I would get like C pluses, B minuses in her class. Not very good. But then history and English and things that allowed me to write a paper or to do a presentation, I would do really well in. How would you sum up your college experience? I went to UCLA. So you moved across the country to California. That's right. Were you just loving it? It's the thing that brought me to California. I knew that I wanted to pursue acting, especially film and TV. And I didn't know the first thing about it because, you know, I didn't come from a family that knew anything other than the sciences. You know, getting a degree in engineering, which my dad had, and then a degree in chemistry, which my mom has. Those are the only reasons they were allowed to come to America. In the early 70s, there was a labor shortage for engineers and people in science fields. That's why there's so many Indian doctors and engineers. And of course you have a problem-solving mind. (laughs) But I'm terrible at that stuff. (laughs) Well, just questioning why you need to know the things. You know what I mean? The rationale. I guess that's true. Yeah, sure. I was going to say a lot of that probably comes from just the insecurity of being an artist, but you're probably right. A lot of the other part of it just comes from a genuine inquisitiveness. But college was fascinating because I got into the theater and film school, and so I started as a theater major, but realized very quickly that the thing that I really wanted to do, which was to start working... It wasn't something that UCLA's undergrad theater department encouraged you to do, you know, which makes sense. They want you to finish your four or five years as an undergrad. So it was figuring out, like, what's the bare minimum of classes you have to take in order to be a student? And then of those three or four classes, there's usually one every quarter that I knew I was going to get a shitty grade in because I had to, like, sacrifice one in order to go on unpaid auditions for projects from backstage.com. You know, it was that kind of thing, which in retrospect, I loved as frustrating as it was. It's every actor goes through that. You know, what are your first few years like and how are you building up your resume? I assume you had a similar story or at least your friends had similar stories. Yeah, I went to University of Washington, but I've been acting in Seattle since I was nine. Awesome. Yeah, it was theater and then like training videos for Red Robin or Safeway (laughs) for a few hundred bucks. Yeah. But then when I made the decision to roll the dice and give LA a year, when I got Scary Movie, that was when I was like, oh, I am out of my element. Okay. Don't know what's going on. Yeah. I assume what you're alluding to is what I felt most of the time in my first few movies just was like this immense imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Like, who is allowing me to do this? Somebody's made a phenomenal mistake by letting me be here. But then were there moments within that that you felt very comfortable or that somebody sort of supported you in a particular way? No. Oh, no. Okay. (laughs) No. No. In fact, I think it was boot camp. It was like Hollywood boot camp. You're going to be the lead of this movie. You're going to feel like a background actor. 
And you'll be reminded every moment of the day that this is your first movie. <laughs> the reason I ask is my version of that was Van Wilder with Tara Reid and Ryan Reynolds. And both of them were so kind to me during oh. that production. Tara was wonderful. She had just come off of American Pie. Ryan, who I had most of my scenes with, realized that I loved improv. I think during our final audition, which was between me and another guy, who happened to be, by the way, happened to be a white dude in brown face that I was up against. Oh. I was like, oh my gosh, no what is way. happening? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I got the part and Ryan was wonderful because he's like, let's just improvise some scenes. Like you're good at this. And I was feeling so much imposter syndrome that like you need the lead in the movie to be like, hey man, just try it. Trust yourself and try this. But in that movie, my character's back gets lit on fire. So he tries to hook up with this woman. He lights these scented candles. Everything goes awry and his back catches on fire. The way they actually did that was the first day that we shot the film. My first scene was getting my back lit no, on fire. that's your first scene. First scene, first real Hollywood movie first big oh thing God. ever it was i had to get fitted for a prosthetic back which is way cooler than it sounds in reality it's a really thin piece of silicone that's maybe if you folded a paper towel in half it's maybe that thin and they light it on fire with gasoline there's a little pocket inside of it that they shoot cold water after the director yells cut so that when the heat transfers it doesn't burn your actual back oh God. And so we shoot these scenes and I'm like, I'm naked except for boxers through most of it. You know, it's a ridiculous scene. And when it was done, the woman who played the love interest, Ivana Bazilovich, wonderful. She and I were talking. We're like, we don't know each other. It's day one of like 60 seven on this movie. Why on earth would they shoot this first? There was no chemistry. So I pulled the producer aside. I was like, hey, man, can I ask you, like, why did you shoot this scene first? We would have had so much better chemistry if we did it later. And he goes, oh, I mean, if I lose an actor, I don't want to have to reshoot the whole film. I'm like, what do you mean? Totally. Because you're on fire. <laughs> if something bad happens, I'm like, oh, shit, really? Like, if I burn my face off, you're just going to recast me? It's like, yeah, why wouldn't I? <laughs> like, oh, great. Thank you. That's that's wonderful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Scary Movie 3, our final day of shooting. We're doing this bit where Regina Hall and myself are wandering around an airplane. Yeah. We were doing this bit where I'm looking up about to climb into the airplane and an airplane food cart just smashes into my face and it like okay. takes me down. <laughs> Cindy Campbell's always getting knocked down. Uh -huh. This thing was like 120 pounds it was padded, but with that weight. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this thing almost broke my nose. And it was like, of course, it's last day, you assholes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. That makes sense. Yeah. It was part three, so they couldn't do it the first day. Right. No. They nope. had to wait. Yeah. They had to wait till the very yep. end. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
Oh, man. Okay, Cal, would you consider yourself a romantic? And have you experienced heartbreak? Oh, my gosh. Who hasn't experienced heartbreak? Yeah, I feel like everything, perspectives on this, at least for me and a lot of friends who I talk to, are understandably skewed because of COVID and kind of reassessing what's important Mm -hmm. or even just how polarized things are outside of friendships or even within friendships, right, the last few years. I almost feel like being a romantic and trying hard not to be a cynic are tied together for me a lot of times. Like, because the part of inevitability of being a romantic is seeing or wanting to see or feel hope or positivity Mm -hmm. in something, like in a moment, in a shared moment or something like that. So it's something that I'd thought about in conjunction with other things the last few years. The real shitty reality is that it is how much time can heal things. But the thing that overlays that for me is that it's not time alone. It's processing it. So if I'm ignoring something that was heartbreaking or traumatic or even just a bummer, you know, that maybe didn't even rise to the occasion of being heartbreaking or traumatic and I ignore it instead of working through it. I find that obviously that's a tension that I carry around even after the fact. Yeah. You know, I told you about the first draft of the book and how jaded that felt or how dark it was. Rather, I think that's a great example of it where some of these things were stories from eighth grade, like silly, now funny stories about getting bullied in eighth grade. That the first time I wrote them, I put myself back in that place. And I think the reason that it was such a visceral writing of those stories is that I hadn't maybe fully thought about those things as an adult. And didn't realize that, wow, shit, like my perspective on certain things is still affected by something that maybe happened 20 years ago. And I very much welcomed having the chance to write it out and go through that. So I feel like it's not just time alone. It's the thinking about it, too. Will you tell us about the bullying? Yeah, I laugh about it in a way because, I mean, when I was in eighth grade, it wasn't called bullying. It was just called middle school. Totally. Yep. (laughs) You know, it was just like, oh, yeah. And in our case, it was a combo of things. So I was also a nerdy drama kid. Our middle school was very much what our high school was not. So for all the wonderful things I said about our high school, how there weren't cliques and there weren't popular kids and not popular kids, middle school was very much the TV version of all that shit. It was like, there's the popular kids, there's everyone else, and it's a tiered system, and the drama kids are at the very bottom. A good middle school should prep you for your <laughs> your shitty high school experience so you can say, like, I guess it's not as bad as middle school. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then you move to a place like entertainment where you have to fight for every job and right. you're like, oh, middle school was cake compared to this. <laughs> this struggle is an adult struggle. So we were not the cool kids. And I remembered actually the first time I remember thinking about representation on TV, which of course now people talk about a lot, diversity and representation. One of the first times I remember thinking about it was when I was the Tin Man in The Wiz in eighth grade, and we shared the gym with soccer players. So there was a stage in the gym and we would rehearse and they would stretch and then go out to practice. And we shared a late bus home and the late bus home was torment because they would basically just recite whatever snippets they heard when they were stretching. It was awful. And then that would graduate to them like, you know, imagine 80s movies about high school. So it was that. It was getting beat up on the bus or getting spit on, things like that that were very much like just dumb eighth grade boy things to do, but that you definitely don't know how to process if it's also within a hierarchy. The thing that fucked with my head was that whenever they would do that, they did that to everybody, but whenever they would do it to Indian kids, they would always quote Apu from The Simpsons. And I thought that was wild 
because it showed me that their only exposure to anyone who they thought looked like me was a cartoon character voiced by a white dude. Like it wasn't even a real human, right? It was just this other thing. And, you know, having an adult brain now to be able to dissect it with humor and to kind of put it in its rightful place on what that all was. It was still the first time that the 13 or 14 year old me was like, oh, shit, what's the deal with this? And how does this make me feel about what's happening? And it was one of the things that that same play, when we put it up for the school, we had to do three forced scenes for the whole school, including the soccer players. And there's a scene at the end where the Tin Man gets his heart from the whiz. And the line that I'm supposed to say after I get the heart is, all you fine ladies out there, watch out. And I was dreading saying this line. First of all, it's an awkward line. Right. But it's also, well, what does it mean? No, what does it mean? And you're going to get shit on by yeah. all the soccer players, too, yeah. for saying that totally. line. That's the line they're going to recite to you on the bus. So I go up there, I get the heart, and it's the first time I remember as an actor being in the zone is like 14-year-old me. I walk to the edge of the stage, and instead of delivering the line as I had rehearsed, this arrogance came over me, and I looked at the audience, and I said, all you fine ladies out there, and I did this massive oh. pelvic thrust, <laughs> and then I said, watch out. And I walked back to where I was supposed to you stand. And I was like in. standing like I leaned into it. The crowd went ape shit. Everyone was on their feet. They were applauding. Girls were screaming on the bus on the way home. The soccer players that afternoon applauded and were like, holy shit, that was so funny. And I, in retrospect, it was probably the first time I recognized one of the reasons I've grown to love comedy is it can be a unifier. It can give people the suspension of disbelief from what they may have previously believed or imagery they had seen before. But it was magic, man. That was the thing where I'm like being able to take something that was awkward, painful, confusing, weird. And warp it into some awesome victory. Yeah. This is the stuff of movies. Right. So that's all of what I mean when I say that in retrospect, when I've had the chance as an adult to think about things, it's not just time, it's being able to look back and process a specific moment with what that's then offered you as an adult. Cal, I was watching some of your interviews for your press tour, and I know you get a ton of questions about Josh. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, what do you wish you would be asked in terms of your relationship? <laughs> sure, yeah. Or do you not like to talk about it at all? What are your feelings? This question is posed so wonderfully and respectfully <laughs> and clearly from somebody that had to deal with that kind of shit in a non-kind way. <laughs> so the whole book, it took about four years to write, in part because I researched a lot of it. So, I mean, it's a fun, silly memoir that you should read at the beach. But there were parts about things like the Van Wilder brownface, right, that I did a lot of fact-checking on because what I love about what we do is how beautifully Hollywood can and does change over time. And I just think that's the coolest thing in the world. And so in writing about things that happened in the past, I just wanted it to be very clear that I wasn't trying to rehash old beef or old things that had happened, but rather build upon it in celebration. Sure. The things that formed you, of course. Yeah, totally. And then I worked in politics and government for a few years. So there are some chapters on what that was like. You say that so casually. Worked in politics. <laughs> you worked in the White House. Worked for the president of the United States. I did. I did. It was awesome. Um, all of which is to say the subtext of the book, aside from dick jokes that you will hopefully enjoy on vacation at the pool or the beach, is that systems can and do change over time, right? And there are only two real stories in the book that have nothing to do with merit. One is this funny, ridiculous first date gone wrong story about how Josh and I met and he came over with an 18 pack. You must tell us. 
We met when I was working in DC. He was working elsewhere. We meet through friends. And I had one afternoon off a week. Usually it was Sunday afternoon. And so for our first real date, it's like, all right, well, I'll come over. We'll just like grab beers and hang out. So I had like, you know, you clean the apartment. I have the TV turned to SpongeBob SquarePants because I'm a giant man child. And he shows up with an 18 pack of Coors Light. And as I'm putting the Coors Light in the fridge, he changes the TV to a NASCAR race. And I'd never watched a NASCAR race in my life. It dawned on me very quickly that this was entirely unironic. This was like an unironic, I've brought 18 Coors Lights and I'm watching NASCAR at your apartment. I was like, oh, this dude is going to leave in about 20 minutes with 16 beers and a handshake. Like, that's just how this is going to end. And then over the course of that afternoon, A, I grew to be fascinated by NASCAR, but we really bonded off of a conversation about things like camping. So a lot of families who go to NASCAR races will camp out in the infield and make a whole weekend out of it with friends. And Where's Josh from? He's from Mississippi. Okay. And in my case, you know, I had immigrant parents. We never went to a NASCAR race, but one of the more affordable vacation things that we would do is go camping, you know, because you just pack the station wagon with a tent. You call one or two other families and you're camping in Pennsylvania or upstate New York. York or something like that. It's essentially free. And so we bonded off of that. Anyway, so the story is what editors like to call a palate cleanser, which means, okay, there's like serious shit in your book and there are like absurd jokes. And then here's a nice self-deprecating story that has nothing to do with any of that. So one of the stories is that. And then another story is my parents. It's a longer story, but about their immigration experience and how my dad came to America with $12 in his pocket and an opportunity to work in a particular field. So Both of those sets of stories were the only parts of the book that weren't about my merit, right? Nothing to do with like, I worked hard and overcame this. No life lessons in either of these stories. And so when the book comes out and the press start to write about it, I was naively, now I understand why, but naively, I just sort of thought that was a funny chapter. And instead, like every article is like, gay Calpan writes big gay book only about gay. Everybody buy gay book. (laughs) And I'm like, no, 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 wait, no. Oh, no, what a shame. It's a funny book about Hollywood and working for Obama and all of this kind of stuff. So in retrospect, obviously, I understand why. And maybe that was a bit of naivete on my part that, okay, you are a public figure and there might be interest in your personal life. So I'm happy to share all that. It's why it's in the book. But yeah, I like the way that you asked that question, because I think that the way that it's sometimes received is just different than what you might expect because, you know, it's a thing that you spend four years working on and it's one wonderful but small part of your story that I'm happy to talk about and I'm happy it resonates with folks. I think the other part of it that, especially for a podcast like yours, the part of it that caught me off guard was that I very much respect folks who offer relationship advice or struggles or things that they've gone through. And especially for a lot of younger LGBTQIA folks, part of their identity is that for them. And in my case, my experience wasn't the experience of a, you know, Chastin Buttigieg, whose memoir is fantastic. And he's got this hilarious chapter about how he was in 4-H as a kid showing off his show cow. You know, like that couldn't be more different from Pussy Auntie <gasps> and my experience on the suburbs of New Jersey. So I think it was also just being mindful of people's expectations. Like if the press is billing it as a big gay book and it's not, it's actually a funny book about the system change, not wanting readers to feel like they're being misled into something that it's not. What advice would you give to a young person who was maybe in the closet? Yeah. 
I think the other perception when I shared the story about how Josh and I met was that I was somehow living a deeply closeted life and I never saw it that way. So we have been together for 11 years and the reality was both my parents and Josh are very private people and I've always wanted to value their privacy so much so that like, you know, they'll come to movie premieres and they'll be in the car with me. But the second we pull up, they go through the side entrance. They're like, we're getting popcorn and sodas and we'll meet you at the seats. I like to do that too. Right. I mean, we all would if we didn't have to go promote the thing. But for them, I think one of the reasons that you don't say like, okay, People Magazine, let's do a photo shoot at home with the partner and the dog or whatever. It's because you want to respect that he is not somebody who likes to be in the public eye or likes to be photographed or anything. So this is where I think I was a bit naive or I can understand why the perception was that this was a coming out story or a coming out book. Whereas in my world, that wasn't the case. So I think The only thing I can say is that there's no timeline on anything and there's no right way to do something. You know, if you feel that you're doing something the right way for yourself, there will understandably be plenty of people to disagree with you and plenty of people to understand that. So hopefully there isn't an added self-created burden there. I love that, the idea that there isn't a timeline necessarily. I don't know, maybe there's pressure to make coming out like the Kool-Aid man running through a (laughs) brick wall. (laughs) I'd never thought of it that way, and you're not wrong. (laughs) Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Megan. Hey. Hey, how are you? I'm really good and excited. <laughs> and I just wanted to say, Anna, obviously I'm a huge fan since high school. And Cal, what you did for the refugees. And I remember oh, donating to thank it. You. So. Oh, thank you so Getting much. <laughs> That's so nice. Thank you. Yeah. But I was just, my dad's side of the family is Mexican and knowing the immigrant story. and Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Megan, you're 
so lovely. And (laughs) thank you for your letter. It is incredibly intriguing. Will you tell us what's going on? Yeah. So I grew up in a mega church and then probably after high school, I kind of slipped away from that. And I had some friends reach out to me. They're like, my friends have moved in the area and started a church. You should meet these people. You'll love them. And at first I didn't reach out. And then another person reached out. And so I was like, okay, I'll meet with them. So I met with them, really like enjoyed their company. First, they were my pastors and then they became friends. So this is like essentially a more intimate church? Yeah, it's like a house church, kind of. I grew up in a mega huge church that now I know it's kind of cult-like. So I was trying to like really get away from that. And so then I meet these people that was like more home group feeling. And, you know, I was like, okay, I can do this. And how many would you say? Probably 20, like at its most. So the wife became one of my really good friends. I mean, she was in the room with me when I was in labor when I had my daughter three years ago. Is there only one pastor? Yeah, and his wife. And they would normally hold it at their house, like hold the meetings at their house. So COVID happened. We didn't really get together. They did some stuff on Zoom. I kind of took a step back, but him and I had played music together. So that's more our connection. We were friends, but like I sing and play ukulele and like he sings and plays guitar. So we would play like a few gigs. So this year, finally, we're like, let's meet up. Let's do this again. So we met up in March and we met outside on my porch because I still don't feel comfortable having people in my home. We met outside. We talked for a little bit. Everything was good. And then, you know, he sent me a text. This was March. Like, I can't wait to do this again. Like, it was so fun. I was like, yeah, I'm riding the high from it. Because it was like the first time I got to like sing and like we harmonized well together. Like, it just felt good. And so I hadn't seen him for a while. We don't text really. So basically came over mid-June. It was a Friday and we talked a lot. Like the vibe fell off, but I know he's been depressed. It was just him? Just him. Yeah. He felt like a brother to me. So I didn't ever think, you know, he never showed me any attraction or feelings. So we're talking and he knows a lot about my past sexual abuse because They were in like a therapy-like setting where, you know, you feel comfortable enough to tell your pastors and stuff that. So he's known all this deep detail that I wouldn't normally share with people. So we had talked a little bit about that in the beginning, but he was asking me questions about myself. And like, he was even talking about his own relationship with his wife. And, you know, I was telling him like, oh, my therapist says like, you know, it's just surface level stuff. Megan, when he talked about his wife, was it negative or positive? In the beginning, it felt like he was just saying, like, even though he does romantic things, it's like hard to keep romance in the relationship. And he's taken like a sabbatical from church so that he can work on himself to get back to the church. So that's kind of where he is. So everyone's been like, oh, he's depressed. He's sad. He's in a dark place. And so he's talking to me about this. So I'm thinking in my head, okay, he's in a bad place. I had just said something like my therapist said, you know, like sometimes it takes work. It's like a massage. Sometimes you have to schedule things like that's basically the basis of that. And then I also had mentioned how I had a breakthrough with some of my like sexual trauma abuse with touch and stuff. Nothing that should have ever turned him on, you know, like I considered him a brother and I don't have an ounce of attraction towards him. You guys have shared some personal stuff. You feel safe. And then what happens in that moment? First, he asked me a question how my husband and I have felt about open relationships. And I kind of felt like it was inappropriate, but I thought I was like, oh, maybe he's asking. We talked about it. And I said, we've talked about it before, but I didn't mean us, but I'm like, my husband is such a monogamous. He doesn't believe it's right. But I'm at a place where like, I have friends that have an open marriage and it works for them. But I was like, if no one agrees, 
So then we're talking about being parents and our struggles, like not struggles, but just like I was talking about my connection, my daughter's change in a good way. And then all of a sudden he gives me this like super intense look. And because I don't identify that with him, like him being that way towards me, I was like, no, that's not it. There's no way. I'm like, he's feeling emotional because we just talked about parenting being hard. I should give him a hug. And so I stood up and I gave him a hug. And then I felt the feely like touching my back stuff. And I was like, almost shut down because that's in the past in situations like this, I would shut down and sometimes let the man do what he wanted, you know, but I was like, okay, what am I going to do? And then all of a sudden I feel him turn his head and I feel his lips against the side of my head. And I was like, no. And so I pushed away and I said, we can't do this. Like what's going on? And it was like, oh yeah, good thing. Nothing happened. If we'd done something more to ruin our families, not only our families, but our community around us. I was in such a state of shock and I was like, if I had ever thought that he had any sort of feelings towards me, he would have never come over. I would have told my husband, because even when I have male relationships, because I've grown up in this Christian background where we're told you can't have a male relationship unless it's your husband kind of thing. So I'm always with my husband. Okay, I have this friend. I'm playing music with this person. How do you feel? He's like, I trust you. He grew up so different than I did. So anyway, I would never put myself in that situation. I so believe you. And I'm so sorry that you have to continue to tell people this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't believe that the first thing he said was, oh, it's good that we didn't take this any further. Like, yeah. You're like, what the fuck, man? Exactly. I wasn't going to take it anywhere. <laughs> we are not a we. Exactly. Yeah. And I keep faulting myself for things I said because I was in such shock. My body was like, reacting the best it could, right, you know? Right, And so we sat down and, well, first thing he said, are you going to tell your husband? I'm like, of course I am. But he's like, what are you going to tell him? I'm like, well, I need to think about it. I mean, I was planning on telling him everything, but then he's like, well, I'm going to tell my wife, but you know, I'm not going to tell her step-by-step details. I'm just going to tell her that we had a weird moment and we can't be alone together anymore. And I'm like, he sat there and manipulated me for almost 45 minutes with this totally. stuff. And then he told me that he's been fantasizing about me. Oh, God. Not that he liked me. Not that he had feelings for me, but he'd been fantasizing about me. Sure. And then he said, the last time we played music together, he felt joy with me. He thought he could never feel joy again. I mean, just so many things were said. Then I was like, well, I have to tell your wife. Like, I'm friends with her. What am I going to say? He's like, oh, don't worry about it. She'll repress it. And then it'll come out in sadness somewhere later in her life. He said, don't worry about it. Yeah. Or please don't talk to her. Exactly. I was actually emotional when he was talking so bad about his wife. He said, I would have to cheat on her multiple times for her to ever leave me. And I was like, that makes me so sad. He's like, no, that's something she needs to work on. Uh, oh, what a... Th- Sorry. No, even my say. therapist, when I told her the story, she said, this is not professional to me to say, but this guy is a jerk. You know? yeah. Oh, he's a fucking asshole. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I can say that because I'm not a professional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, same. I mean, it's clearly super manipulative with each increasing step. Yeah. 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 And because I was in such shock, I was like letting him talk. And towards the end of it, he was like, I hope you're not in therapy for this five years down the road. Oh, what a creep. Yeah. And even I said, I'm sorry. Like, I think I misinterpreted your look. He's like, no, all I wanted to do was hold you. And he's like, if you wouldn't have hugged me, I would have let that look pass. Like, so instantly started the blame on me. And so basically that's the gist of that. Why wouldn't he be an adult? Yeah. And apologize? Yes. Literally my first thought. That's what an adult does. The fact that he didn't say, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I was feeling really close to you. I apologize profusely. Like owning. Yeah. 
So now his wife knows. Right. She's pissed at you and everybody's pissed at you guys. Is that what's happened? No, she's not even, this is crazy. Like I never even thought this would ever be my life. So I immediately walked in the house. As soon as I walked in the house, I just started bawling because I was like, something is wrong with this. So I called my sister, but then my husband came home and I told him everything. And he was so mad. He had to tell me that he manipulated me. I didn't even see it in the moment. I was still thinking he's embarrassed because of his actions, but he never said sorry. So my husband's like, I understand you make mistakes. You say sorry for it. But the fact that he sat there and manipulated you for 45 minutes is a whole nother story. It's disgusting. So Days are going by. His wife is responding to me on Instagram saying like, I love you and your daughter, like saying messages like that. And I was like, oh, he has not told her. And I had to open them and read them, not respond. Because if I pretend like everything's okay, she's going to think I'm like complicit. So finally, my husband has had it. So in a group text, he sends a message to both of them so he can be held accountable with his wife and saying like, how dare you? Basically, like you used her, you knew of her sexual abuse and you thought you could prey on her. And so they hadn't talked. His wife came over on a Friday, so a week later, and I brought out a box of tissues because I'm so emotional. I'm like, no way. If I was in her position, I would be so emotional myself. And so it's like she's showing less emotion than you're showing right now. It was almost like she's done this before. She wasn't really in shock, but she told me basically was, my husband is mentally ill and I have to take care of him. She's like, I'm not trying to downplay what you're saying. I mean, I told her every single detail. I mean, we spent a long time talking about it. She's like, he's going to talk to the church leaders. And my parents are part of the leadership, by the way. Oh, whoa. I brought him into this church, which I have regrets, but trying not to have regrets. She's like, he's going to talk to leadership this weekend where I'm like, oh, great. He's going to be accountable. But all this time in our group text, never once said, I'm sorry. So to me, the easy solution is, of course, separate yourself from these people. Yeah. Like, this is crazy. And it's unfair. It makes you feel like shit. These people aren't your friends. Yeah. So they basically had a meeting with him. He had the nerve to call my dad and tell him before the meeting. My dad believes me 100%, which is a new thing for me because... When I was abused as a child and I went to my parents because it was a family member and they questioned it, like, are you sure? And being little, how am I supposed to know what that is? So my parents have amazed me and it's brought healing for my mom because she's now said, oh my gosh, all these men have done this to me and she's downplayed it. So there is some goodness that has come out of this. But my dad is like on fire, like, no, didn't believe him. But he's like, I had to push Megan off of me. She gave me a hug. I admit that I gave him a hug. Oh, that's what he says. To my dad, because he knew that my parents haven't believed me in the past because I shared that with him. Mm-hmm. So he was banking on my dad not believing him. Mm. I've had a few boyfriends, maybe one husband, <laughs> say like, oh, so-and-so tried to kiss me. And I've had to hear that three or four times before sort of recognizing, oh, that's like a proactive defense. You guys fucked. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and in case I hear rumors... This is his insurance. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, I clearly am feeling very passionately about your Mm -hmm. situation. It's hard because this is so personal, but it's weird because I know I don't know you two, but I feel like I do because you've been a part of my world. So it feels safe. So that's nice that it feels safe to talk to you both. Uh, Thank you for saying that. I'm glad you did that. Yeah. 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 I really do. So yeah, they have a meeting and my husband wants to, I told him I won't be a part of a meeting because I didn't feel safe with him. Like, I just didn't mm-hmm. feel safe seeing his face. It just triggered so many things of my past. 
And so I wanted my husband to be a part of this Zoom meeting for representation. And they decided that he couldn't be a part of it, but his wife was allowed to be. Who decided this? The church leadership, not my parents. There's four people and then they let two other people in because they're like, they might take sides. So we want these two people to be in the middle. They weren't even a part of leadership, which they didn't even want to be a part of this. So now people I don't know are dragged into my story. So basically he wrote this letter. When I tell you is the most disgusting letter that when I read it, it made me feel suicidal. He shared personal things with a twist, you know, like he went so far to say, because what I shared with him was I'm always sensitive to my husband's touch. And I realized because my abuser, when I was a child, touched me gentle. And so he had the nerve to say that basically I wanted my husband to rape me because I liked it. Oh my God. Oh, Megan. So that's where I drew the line. And at that moment, I felt like these people were believing him. And I'm like, I'm not a suicidal person, but at the time I was like, what's the point of me being here? Women are never believed. There's a hashtag that says believe women because of this, you know, because of a man like this. So I was feeling so emotional. I was angry. He had said that I told him my husband had anger issues. So it would invalidate anything my husband said out of righteous anger, you know, because my husband has a right to be angry. Mm -hmm. He said that I gave him the look and that he felt unsafe. He didn't feel good around me. He felt uncomfortable that I was inappropriate all this stuff. He stole my story because his wife told him everything word for word. At one point, one of the leaders was like, this is what Megan said. Did you listen to her audio recording? Because I had sent them an audio recording. And he's like, no, he just did that. So they wouldn't know who to believe. Mm. So I will try to keep this short because it just, it's not stopped up until last night. It just doesn't stop. So I don't feel like I owe these people anything. Nope. That's right. Not at all. Nothing. So I had said, okay, fine, I'll meet with you. I'll read you the text message that I sent. I broke up my friendship with his wife because you have to choose between believing your husband of 20 plus years and a friend of a few years. Like that's a horrible position to be in, but it's not healthy for me. And I told him like, you're a liar. He stole my story. Basically, like, I will find justice for this. It might not be in my lifetime, but I will teach my daughter to protect herself from men like you. That is a beautiful way to put it. And it's so amazing that he heard that. I mean, he didn't. Right. But that you got to articulate that. Yeah, and it felt powerful. And I actually have to go back and read that sometimes to give myself that power back. And I told him, you have not stolen my power. It's my power. It's not yours. And you cannot take it from me. So basically, I find out that he has contacted a lawyer just for advice. And I think he wanted the church to pay for it. And so they refused to. This guy is a fucking piece of work, man. That's what everyone's like, just say that we'll give you grace. And so, yeah, now his wife was like, he's in therapy, you know, he's on meds. I'm like, therapy is not going to work if you can't tell the truth. Is he going to sue you for defamation? Yeah, I don't even know. For the 20-person house church? Because he's losing his finances. Like, he's been on sabbatical, and he's been able to get paid. So he's trying to cling on to his position, his money, that my parents have given him money for the past five years to survive, where my parents don't make a lot of money. Because he's a pastor, right? Yeah, because you're guilted that you have to give 10% of what you make every month to the church you go to. What are the difficulties of leaving this church? That was my question. I think is because I did build like a community. I'll go back if I can share my story, but I'm not going back again. The leaders now believe me after I had a face-to-face when they believe me, but it's like, I don't feel any connection to church anymore. This church was my last straw with it. Like 
I guess it's eating at me is that he got arbitrators. I think he expected these other church leaders that deal with sexual misconduct to say, you're right, she's wrong. But they sided with me, which there's no side. They believe me, I should say. So the leaders had said that they wanted him to resign. He refused that and he went above. He has a board of people. And they last night said that he shouldn't be held at fault for my issues because clearly I'm a woman with issues and that he's a man of God and he needs to keep going. So he gets to keep his little church and get payment from these people. In my opinion, I feel really strongly about this. You need to leave this church and you need to do it formally and you need to do it decisively. Write them a letter. You don't have to be emotional about it. They're going to call you. They're going to try to like, well, no, we're going to blah, 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 blah. Your parents are going to weigh in on this for sure. My parents have left. Oh, Oh, great. Great. Yeah. And my mom has been doing the finances and all that. And she's just sending them all the stuff. They don't even know how to do it, but he can just do it. Like he's gotten free labor from all these people, free money. So let me just get this clear, though. Are you comfortable leaving? Is that what your plan is? Yeah, yes. I hope you do it immediately. And I hope you do it without emotion. And it's amazing that you have such an incredibly supportive husband. Mm -hmm. There isn't anything to his lawyering. No, I think because he expected the church to pay for it and nobody. Yeah, like for what? The sooner you can sever ties not just like formally by writing them a letter or an email, which I would do as opposed to calling. I would ignore their phone calls. Do this surgically. You are a professional. You are your own person. They don't own you. And then you'll be able to kind of trick your mind eventually. You'll start to feel the actions you're doing. Yeah. I'm so sorry that all of that happened to you. It takes an incredible amount of bravery to share that. Mm -hmm. And I also am very glad to hear how supportive your parents and your husband are. Yeah. Yes. And I am so excited for your next steps because you deserve a safe place to have community and build community and whatever your definition of faith is right now and whatever it continues to blossom into, whether that's with something organized, whether it's not, whether it's just something with your family, you deserve that safety and you deserve to have that happiness and that opportunity. And I'm, I know this is an increasingly tough situation that you're able to break away from. I am very excited for your next steps. Thank you. And I agree with what Anna said that end it with a letter and email. I am so proud of you, Megan. Thank you. You exhibited so much strength through this. It's amazing and it should be celebrated. And that's why I want you to go do something fun that's distracting. Yeah. You know, only time will kind of smooth out the raw edges still. And that's what I said to him in a text. I said, I will eventually find healing from this because I spoke the truth. I said, you'll never find healing for it until you speak the truth. Megan, you've already said your piece. I don't need to do it again. They don't need or deserve anymore. You just say, I'm leaving respectfully, Megan. That's it. Yeah. It feels good to be heard. And like you said, I've taken so many steps and I've just only spoken the truth. And it just is so wild to me that as a woman, I'm not believed. Mm-hmm. And actually being an adult now and recognizing, like I was talking about my mom, she's realizing all the stuff where pastors, men have taken advantage of her. And it's just like, it's crazy. I really appreciate you. Mm-hmm. But I do want you to know you won't find justice. You won't find justice in this circumstance. The only thing you do is you break it off. For whatever reason, they want to continue this. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. And it's time for you to just protect yourself. Mm -hmm. Megan, I love you. 
I love you too. Like it means the world that I could share my story with you too. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. I'm wishing you all the best. Yeah, you got this. Yeah. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Bye, Megan. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you. I am genuinely so excited for her next steps because she deserves that. She deserves the happiness. And fuck that guy. Like waiting for an apology from somebody who clearly either is too twisted or whatever the reason for him not understanding what he did. It's not the fucking point. Like he's not going to. Totally. I know what you were alluding to with like, hey, you're not going to get justice and you deserve no. to be able to move on and be happy. Is that is like, fuck that guy. Yeah. Emily. Hey, Emily. Hi. So nice to meet you both. Hi. Nice to meet you. Really nice yeah. to meet you. Thank you for your letter. And will you tell us what's going on? Yes. So I am almost 40, which is really cool. Love it. I've never had any trouble making friends, which is really fortunate. I do feel like midlife, I'm just kind of tired of friendships with my cis women friends being as complicated as they can be. Uh-huh. Sure. Which is like, I hate to have a gendered issue to bring up because everyone's wonderful. We're all doing the best we can. I feel like in my life, I try to be as good to other people as I can be. And I feel like, especially like when you're in a competitive industry, there's like clickishness that never really goes away. And you meet people that you love so dearly who really nourish you and you meet people that maybe you don't love so much, but you still have some like positive relationships with. And then there are always these people who insist on like getting together and being cold. And I don't know, it's just so frustrating. Emily, I feel you. I have never felt like I've understood the secret language of women. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much in what you said, Emily, that I resonated with mostly because I turned 40 a few years ago. Like, I love it. I also don't feel whatever it means to, like, feel like you're over 40. Like, I don't feel that way necessarily, whatever that's supposed to mean. But I think the disconnect that, you know, sometimes I feel with people who I've known for a long time, a lot of that I thought stemmed from age because, you know, I don't have kids, for example, and a lot of folks have kids. And so, you know, the hours where people are available or my brother's kids, I love my niece and nephew to death, but it's all yelling and screaming when we talk on the phone. <laughs> There's like the idea of it, but you love that. But then also that missing piece. But the biggest thing that stuck out to me was, I don't know that there is a silver bullet. If your frustration right now is with cis women and you make friends with folks who don't identify as cis women, there's a whole shitload of drama that comes with everybody just from being human. Yeah. So I don't know how much of a silver bullet it's going to be by finding different groups of friends. And I would be very curious to know what the other factors are. And I only say that because that's something that I've explored in my own life where at first look, I'm like, oh, it's the demographics of the person that I'm friends with, or it's my place in life, right? I don't live in this place anymore, or I'm doing this, that, or the other. And all of that complexity is the thing that I'm sort of most curious about. Is there a specific incident, Emily, that stung you? And are you lonely? Yeah, that's a really good question. I feel like I'm the type of person who maybe overloads my life with friends. And I do have kids, so I don't have a lot of time for that. So where I'm coming from is my time is really precious. 
So if I go to like a work event where I'm friends with a bunch of people there, but they're all like super competitive and cold and clearly I'm supposed to be following some kind of rules that I don't care about or don't understand. And then I go home feeling bad. That's a waste of my time. I know. I'd rather be with my family or I'd rather be with my friends who make me feel warm. And I think it's also partly COVID. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Spending a long amount of time where I had total control over who I was in contact with. Maybe it's like a boundary issue. Like there were a ton of boundaries behind seeing people with COVID and now going back into the world and being like, this doesn't feel good and I don't want to do it, but maybe I have to do it for work or I have to do it because I love these people, but they make me feel bad. I hear you. And I found myself just jumping right into the deep end conversation wise. Maybe it's like between out of practice Mm -hmm. with socializing, (laughs) but when my sort of openness is met with judgmental defense, it totally makes me feel like shit. Yes. Yeah. And I think similarly, a lot of what you've said has always resonated with me in many ways, but there's something about being comfortable with your own self and also being okay with being different. We're gauging each other all the time, and especially now as we've emerged. Yeah. If there is someone who's a little bit like, "Mm," you know, it's hard to not be like, what did I do? I know and take it personally. And that's the thing. And then I go home and just feel sick. And then, you know, my partner is like, why do you go if you feel bad about it? And it's like, I feel like I have to try, Mm -hmm. but then it just feels like a waste of time. (laughs) Well, here's the good news, Emily. It does get better in that way. It's so much easier to shrug now that I'm 45 than it was when I was 32. Yeah, 100% agree. The two things I'll say is I have experienced, Emily, what you were saying about the workplace stuff. And it didn't mean when I experienced it, it didn't mean that I didn't like the people I worked with. And it didn't mean that I necessarily wanted to not hang out with them. It just meant that I felt like we spent so much time together at work that I welcomed friends with whom I don't share whatever I share at work. And so sort of finding that other friend group, which, as you mentioned, is kind of tricky when you're not 26. Yeah, you've got two kids. Yeah, it's totally fine for you to not have any friends. Oh, no, no, wait, I definitely have friends. I'm just telling you, you should get rid of them. Oh, 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 I don't <laughs> doubt that you're well. No, she's I she's see, advocating. I see, to I get see, rid right, of yeah. right. Deep down, I feel like that's the answer. And then it's almost like nobody's ever taught me that or something, that it's okay to chop stuff off if it doesn't feel mm-hmm. good. And, and yes. it's like, that is a part yeah. of getting older and it feels really good yeah. to release that. It's like hard when you're in it. <laughs> I know. Definitely. For some reason, we think that other people have ownership over ourselves. And I think one of the best things about getting older is, I guess, realizing your own autonomy. I think it is a time for you, especially as you're getting into your fourth decade here, I wonder how you can actively work on not absorbing the things that don't make you feel good. Right. That's really good. As opposed to being focused on what it is about you that made that person look at you like that or say that weird thing about your purse or whatever weird communique we use. Right. In a way, it's like (laughs) thinking more about myself. Like, who am I? Yeah. Like, who in our lives journey do we take with us? Do we let infiltrate? Who adds value? I don't think that we give ourselves the gift of recognizing what is ours. Yeah. Right. I think that's well said. I think anytime I think too much about myself, I feel really selfish. Oh, you have like the typical mom, like you got the whole thing, you know, and you're not, you're not selfish at all. Right. You get to live your life. You get to own selfishness. Right. So in a way, I need to be social for work. 
it's like, normally I wouldn't care. I mean, and also having my job be a part of my social life is a really great boundary. And I think I've been thinking a lot about boundaries, but I hate that I'm beholden to it in a way to feel bad. I know. But in my personal life, the choices that I make with relationships, I'm really happy with. And sometimes I feel overloaded, like there are too many people. As you're talking about, I think, so my aunt has been a flight attendant since 1967. Mm -hmm. I love talking to her about it. And I'm constantly like, so how do you deal when the shit's getting crazy? What do you do? How do you maintain? So she just like adopts like another character. Does that kind of idea help you? I think that's a great idea. Yes. If you can get into a mentality of like, this is when I'm in customer service mm -hmm. and I smile and I get the people, the thing, yeah. she compartmentalizes. Yeah, I think that's solid advice. I haven't thought of that before. Oh, good. Yeah. It's a shield. And you're right about boundaries. You can just deflect. Yeah. So it's also strange to have been in lockdown and be like, oh, I love this. I don't think I realized that I'm an introverted person until, because I've always been really social, but I don't think I really realized how much I love being home and not doing anything yeah. until. Totally. You're at a time in your life where you're, I imagine, exhausted. Yeah. I want you to get the nurturing that a good friend gives you. You know, I want you to have like the kind of person that you call when you're feeling a little raw in your life. I think you cultivate that one thing if you have that already. Do you have it already? Oh, yeah. 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 That's all you need. Yeah. I want you to know you're not alone, you know? Yeah. I wish I had like something specific, but I think you need to protect yourself a little bit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Everything you've said is really good. Oh, good. I think just acknowledging that it's something that people feel is helpful. I agree. Emily, you are so lovely. I love you and I hear you. Yeah. Have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Emily, thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. 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 Cal, I cannot thank you enough. And I'm so looking forward to listening to the audiobook. I hope you like it. I really appreciate you. Anna, thank you so much. Bye. 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 